0: data has been produced in the last five years than in all of human history up until that time we'll be finding out what's driving this big data revolution we'll discover what opportunities it opens up and we'll uncover the pitfalls that we might be facing
1: plus scientists find the first water on earth and we talk to the team who raced a solar-powered car 3,000 kilometers across australia i'm connie orback
0: i'm chris smith and this is the naked scientists The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk A fingernail-sized wireless brain implant that's powered only by radio waves and can control nerve cells using pulses of light has been developed by researchers in the US. The device makes use of a phenomenon called optogenetics, where scientists first make nerve cells light-responsive by turning on a gene that produces a light-sensitive chemical. The implant then communicates with these cells by producing light from an embedded LED. It's controlled and picks up energy using a tiny grid of wires that work like an antenna, and it's the brainchild of Robert Giroux from Washington University in St. Louis.
2: Essentially what optogenetics is is a technology that allows Scientists to control the activity of neurons, uh, the cells that uh, mediate transmission in the brain, using light. Typically, the way this is done is something like a fiber optic cable carries light from a laser to allow you to shine light into the brain. And so for that to happen, you have to insert the fiber optic cable into the particular part of the brain. It has a couple of problems. One is the fiber optic insert itself is rigid and, and can cause damage uh, when there's relative motion of the implant. And, of course, the te- the tethering to the laser, uh, to the light source, uh, restricts your ability to implement this in, say, complex uh, behavioral experiments that have been sort of the standard of behavioral neuroscience for decades. So it's hard to apply this technology to sort of the the standard approaches in the field that would really enable uh, great insight into complex behaviors. So what was your approach instead? So the approach that we've been taking is to make small electrical circuits that are flexible and biocompatible and couple them with tiny light sources, something we call micro LEDs, that can be integrated into these small flexible circuits that uh, technology has been advancing. and There have been a couple of papers over the last couple of years of implanting micro LEDs into the brain, injecting them into the brain and sort of integrating those LEDs with the circuit. But the, the remaining problem was powering them. And so there, are, there have either been, you know, wired cables that, that power the LEDs, which gets you back to the same tethering problem we had before, or you can envision tiny batteries or in the case of what we've been uh, working on here is wireless energy harvesting from an RF antenna. They're basically just a grid of wires that
0: can pick up fields, aren't they? So if you you can beam in radio waves and they'll
2: be sensitive, they'll pick those radio waves up and they can turn it into some electricity that the device can use. Yes, exactly. You design this small circuit so that it kind of matches the frequency of that energy and harvest that energy to power this tiny little LED. And we've been able to incorporate them into materials that are stretchy and flexible and tiny. And that means that, first of all, they can be completely implanted under the skin in the animal. You can put these micro-LED uh, devices with their antennas anywhere in the body, and they, because they are stretchy and soft, they move with the body. So they kind of match the properties of the biological tissue. If I had one in front of me, A, how big is it? And B, what would it look like? If you imagine holding out sort of your pinky finger and looking at the nail on your pinky finger, the basic prototype device would fit on the nail with a bit of room to spare. They are sort of clear, looking like a a gelatinous substance. They're made of a substance called PDMS. Medical devices are made of this. It's stretchy and soft and biocompatible. And embedded in that are little gold traces, which are the metallic components of the energy harvesting antenna and then some tiny electronic components that basically amplify that energy and then power the LED, which is small to the point of not being visible to the naked eye. And you could lay one of these devices alongside,
0: say, a nerve along the spinal cord or onto the brain, the idea being that then you'd send the energy in with the radio waves, it would make the LED light up and put light of the right colour into the brain and stimulate those nerve cells.
2: Yep, that's exactly right.
0: How do you know this is going to work? What tests have you done to show that A, it's safe, and B, that
2: actually you can control nerve tissue with this? Well, we've done long-term biocompatibility studies in our animal models thus far, implanting them and leaving the animals for weeks and months, and then looking at the tissue to look for any signs of damage, any signs of inflammation. And we have no indication that there's any kind of adverse uh, effects of implanting these devices over a peripheral nerve or in the space above the spinal cord, for example, to manipulate those circuits. And in terms of knowing whether it will work, we've done some proof-of-concept studies to demonstrate that by implanting these over a peripheral nerve or above the spinal cord, we can very clearly manipulate the circuits that are involved in pain and pain relief and uh, are able to very robustly affect those behaviors in in these animal models. Could you use this
0: therapeutically? If uh, you had a patient with a certain condition, could you apply this and use this
2: to control their brain? Well, that's certainly been my goal as we have been developing these, is not only as research tools to enable us to understand the cells and circuits that mediate pain and how to relieve that, but ultimately down the road, we hope to be able to develop these in the direction of medical devices where we can use them to very precisely control cells that are involved in aberrant communication in the nervous system that mediate um, pathological conditions. In my case, chronic pain is at the forefront.
1: Rob Giroux, describing the wireless brain implant he's just published in Nature Communications. Now, compared with our planetary neighbours, the Earth is a very wet place. But what scientists are unclear about is how much of its water the Earth was born with when it formed, and how much water arrived afterwards aboard incoming comets and asteroids. Now, Lydia Hallis from the University of Glasgow has found some of the first water that formed with the Earth four and a half billion years ago. She knows that's what it is because the chemical composition of the water is different from what's in the oceans today. It's made up of a lighter form of hydrogen, and it shows that when the Earth formed, it came with a lot of water built in.
3: Up until, I would say, about 15 years ago, maybe less than that, we were looking at Earth as water-rich, but we thought that most of Earth's water was present in the oceans and in the rivers and in the atmosphere. And what we're finding more and more is that, actually, when you start to look at the interior of the Earth, in the mantle... There are really a lot of places that you can store water that you would never think you can retain water. But it turns out that if you pressurise really common minerals and silicates in the mantle, you can actually retain a lot of water in what is essentially rock. It may be that there's actually more water in the interior of Earth than there is on the surface.
0: So there therefore could be two things going on here. There could be water born with the Earth, which is inside And then Mm. there could be this veneer of water on the outside, which is a mixture of what it was born with and what was delivered here afterwards then.
3: Yeah, so what we were trying to um, figure out is whether whether the two are completely separate. So whether we could actually find um, a sample of rock on the earth that really did represent this deep mantle and whether there was a reservoir of water down in the deep mantle that was completely separate from surface water and that we could analyse that would help us to understand where the earth's original water came from.
0: How can you get at rocks that date from the time when the earth was formed though? Do
3: they exist? We don't find rocks on the surface that are from the beginning of the Earth's formation, no. Because we have plate tectonics on Earth, all of our crustal rocks eventually get recycled. So we're looking for a reservoir deep in the Earth that does represent the Earth's primordial water, its original water. The way that we get at that reservoir is to sample lavas that come from um, deep mantle plumes i suppose the most famous area would be hawaii and the reason there are volcanoes there is because there's this huge plume of material that's thought to come from the deep mantle um, and erupts onto the surface therefore we get rocks on the surface that are sourced in the deep mantle
0: and when you do this and you look at the flavor of the water which Mm. is coming out with the rock and you compare it with the water on the surface of the earth Are they the same or are they different?
3: They're actually quite different. And it shows that in the deep mantle, there are isolated sources that have water that has been unaffected by any processing on the surface of Earth. So it's been there since the formation of the Earth. It's the original water that Earth was formed with.
0: Therefore, when the Earth formed there must have been a lot of water in the material that gave rise to the Earth for that water to be inside the planet like that. Is that the implication of this finding?
3: Yes, um, especially because if you imagine when um, Earth was accreting or any planetary body is accreting from small dust particles into um, a planet-sized body, you get a lot of heat in there from radioactive elements and also just the heat from friction in accretion. It causes the whole body to melt. Um, And originally, the Earth would have been essentially a big ball of of lava in space, really, really hot at the surface. And so any water that would have been accreting in there that was able to escape as a gas onto the surface of Earth would have escaped and we would have lost a lot of um, water into space. So... It shows that whatever was accreting must have been really, really rich in water for us to be able to retain the amount of water that we have today, having, we assume, lost a lot of uh, a big percentage of that water.
0: Is this important because it begins to give us an insight into what was in that disk of material from which the, the rocky worlds that we're one of formed?
3: Yeah, yeah, I think it's really important, um, not only in terms of the Earth's formation, but also the other rocky bodies in the solar system, especially places like Mars, where we're potentially interested in in going to explore as humans. It shows if we assume that Mars and Earth formed in, in a similar type of mechanism, you would expect then that, not only is Earth quite rich in water, but Mars has also, in its interior, got quite a lot of water. And it starts to pose the questions of what happened to Mars's water. Is it still there? Is it retained as subsurface ice? And it's things that we really don't know that much about any of the other planets um, at all, really. It just goes to show we don't actually know that much about our own planet.
0: Indeed. Lydia Harris and that discovery was announced this week in the journal Science. You're listening to The Naked Scientists with me, Chris Smith, and with Connie Orbach. Still to come, the scientific instrument that will turn out more data in a day than the entire world population puts out in a year.
1: But before that, kicking off the first in a new series of Myth Conceptions, separating science fact from science fiction, Kat Arney takes a look at a persistent but very fishy tale from the underwater world,
4: the claim that sharks don't get cancer. The story starts back in the 1970s, based in legitimate scientific research into ways to stop cancers growing their own blood supply, a process known as angiogenesis, which provides growing tumours with a vital source of oxygen and nutrients. US scientists searching for drugs that could do this noticed that implanting a small piece of cartilage, that's the rubbery stuff in between joints and on the end of some of your bones, could stop angiogenesis and halt tumours in their tracks. This isn't actually quite as weird as it sounds. Unlike bone, which is shot through with blood vessels, cartilage doesn't have any. So it stands to reason that it must be making some kind of molecule that stops blood vessel growth. Given that sharks are cartilaginous fish, meaning that their skeletons are made entirely of cartilage rather than bones, it was a fairly straightforward mental leap to assume that not only would sharks not get cancer, but that their cartilage might also be able to cure it. Indeed, when other researchers tested shark cartilage in the lab, it strongly stopped tumours from growing new blood vessels. And... As far as anyone could tell, wild sharks hardly ever seem to get cancer, and experiments exposing sharks to a chemical that causes cancer in humans had no apparent ill effects, so it all fitted nicely together. The next leap was the publication of a book in 1992 called Sharks Don't Get Cancer, which gathered a huge amount of media attention. The man who wrote the book, a Dr William Lane, was convinced that taking shark cartilage pills could cure cancer, despite the lack of actual scientific evidence from patients to prove it. And off the back of that misguided idea, a multi-million dollar industry was born. Sharks were caught, farmed and slaughtered in their thousands and eventually in their millions to make ineffective shark cartilage pills that were bought and taken by desperate cancer patients. To prove the point, there have been at least three clinical trials showing that shark cartilage tablets are completely ineffective against cancer, providing pretty conclusive evidence that it doesn't work. And yet shark pills are still on sale in some health food shops and alternative medicine stores. Even worse, the whole idea that sharks don't get cancer is untrue. Although it's very hard to get accurate data on diseases in wild ocean animals like sharks, because those that die from cancer or anything else tend to sink to the bottom of the sea, rather than handily presenting themselves for counting by scientists, marine biologists have found many examples of cancer in plenty of different species of sharks. And in 2013, scientists spotted a large tumour in possibly the most famous type of shark of all, a great white, living off the South Australian coast. Although the idea that sharks don't get cancer and that their cartilage can cure it started off with its roots in proper research, it's ultimately led to the futile death of millions of these important and beautiful ocean dwellers. And even if it was the case that a molecule in cartilage could be effective against cancer – All the same stuff is found in cartilage in other animal parts, such as pig's ears. And pigs certainly aren't endangered in the same way that many shark species are. It's time to sink this myth to the bottom of the briny and leave it there.
0: There'll be more myths next week. And incidentally, if there's a potential myth or an anecdote that you'd like us to look into, then you can drop a line to chris at thenakedscientist.com. Tell us what it is and we'll do our best. In the meantime, the Cambridge University Eco Car Team have just landed back in the UK, having competed in the World Solar Challenge. Now, this is a gruelling 3,000-kilometre race across the Australian outback. Greer Jackson went to see how they got on. But first, here's Graham Douglas speaking pre-race earlier this year when they unveiled their solar car to the world.
5: The race is the World Solar Challenge. So every two years, teams from all over the world go to Australia and do a race 3,000 kilometres from the north in Darwin to the south in uh, Adelaide. Uh, There's about 40 teams that start at the beginning, usually between a quarter and a third finish at the end, and it takes about four days.
6: Entirely in solar power, so surely that gives you a number of obstacles to overcome from the get-go?
5: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, our solar array gives you um, less power than you get in a hairdryer, and uh, we use it to propel our car with the driver in it at uh, highway speeds. So there's uh, a lot of challenges on the engineering side...
6: Powering an electric car on the same electrical output as a hairdryer? How on earth does this work? Back on the race course I caught up with technical manager Simon Schofield.
7: One of the things that um, Cambridge University is very good at is being very innovative in the way that we design our cars. Most of the other teams have a very different design that looks more like what's called a tabletop design uh, which means it's a large flat set of panels that face the sky and then there's a pod that the driver sits in in the middle of the car. Um, So our decision to go for something that's much more aerodynamic but has a smaller solar array is something that no other team has tried up to this point.
6: The solar panels to me aren't very big. I'm thinking about the solar panels you get next to a swimming pool. There's loads of them. You've got maybe two meters by half a meter worth of of solar panel there. How are they so efficient?
7: So the solar cells are gallium arsenide cells. Gallium arsenide is a very good semiconductor to use for solar cells because it's a direct bandgap semiconductor. That means that rather than needing phonons as well as photons in order to absorb light, you only need the photons and that means that more of the photons that hit the solar cells will actually be converted into electrons, turns into energy, which allows you to power the battery.
6: And I notice you've got a covering. Um, does that not block some of the photons getting through?
7: So the canopy is about 95% transmissive which does mean that we lose about 5%. But the benefit of having it there is that it actually keeps the aerodynamics of the car extremely good.
8: Okay, the moment has
6: come, everyone. So here's our driver, Amy. I was amazed to see that, despite the rain, Amy managed to take off around the track for a test bit. Although only at about 20 kilometres per hour. But come race day, the team had hoped Evolution would be racing at speeds of 110 kilometres per hour. Three months after their little demo around the running track, the team set off for Australia, ready for race day. But it was a bit of a bumpy ride, as Graham Douglas told me, on his return to the UK this week.
5: While we were testing, about four days before the race, we had a really big problem with our motor. Inside of it melted while the car was going about 95 kilometres an hour on the testing track. So the car swerved a bit, the driver managed to hold it together, but it was quite a scary moment and uh, it ended up that one of the teams uh, had a motor from a few years ago that had uh, the exact spare part that we needed to fix our motor. We put it together overnight in uh, really a epic effort of so many of the team who came together and made it work.
6: It sounds like nail-biting stuff. How was the race? Because it took six days, didn't it? How, how was that?
5: There was ups and downs, definitely biggest problem we had was our battery coming close to overheating so we use uh, lithium-based batteries which um, as many people know there have been some famous fires with lithium batteries so we uh, keep ours well within its operating limits of 55 degrees celsius and we got up to about 53 and a half and uh, when we got that high our electrical guys you know notified the rest of the team and we decided we had to stop and cool the battery down
6: I mean, the battery's one thing, but what about the poor person driving it? That 53 and a half degrees is boiling.
5: Yeah, we have some really tough drivers on our team, and uh, all the solar car drivers uh, do. Our cars are built for speed, and uh, comfort comes into play, but it's uh, a bit down the line.
6: Wow, scintillating stuff. Um, that was the low lights, but I know um, day six you had a triumph.
5: Yeah, day six was the, uh, the last day of the race, and we were coming in the last uh, about the last 250 kilometres into Adelaide, to the finish line. We ended up travelling in at uh, quite a bit faster speed than we were hoping to. We projected driving in at about 50 kilometres an hour, and the uh, power we had in our battery from that extra charge in the morning, we were getting up to about 65.
6: And where did you come?
5: Uh, we came about 20th out of uh, the Challenger class. We are only allowed to drive between about uh, 9 a.m. and 5 p.m., Uh, But our end time was just over 53 hours.
6: And how did that compare with the winning team?
5: Uh, The winning team was a a fair bit quicker. They finished in uh, 37 hours and 56 minutes. So we've uh, we've got our work cut out for us for next time.
6: Something Simon talked about previously was the tabletop design is what most other cars go for. And you went for something a bit different. So was there something fundamental about the other car's designs?
5: Exactly like Simon said, the uh, Cambridge philosophy is we're building a smaller car that's focused on aerodynamics. Nuon, the team that won, takes sort of the classic design. They're uh, a tabletop design, so they have a flat top with uh, four wheels coming out the sides. They've just done a very good execution. They've got uh, very good aerodynamics. They clearly do a lot of time in the wind tunnel and doing uh, computer simulations of their design.
6: Either way, it's a spectacular achievement, and you must be so proud of you and all your team's efforts.
5: Yeah, it was really great. I mean, there's um, just moment walking across the finish line with the team and uh, and the car. They uh, have a moment for all the teams. The car stops just for the finish line. All the team comes up and they all walk across the line together, which um, is really a, a powerful moment and very emotional for everyone because you know how much work we've put into it and how much work that everyone on the team in the past has put into the project and that, that uh, builds every year and uh, gets us where we are now. Graham Douglas
0: and Simon Schofield from the Cambridge University EcoCar Racing Team. They were chatting with Greer Jackson. If you just look at body size and cancer, you might expect larger organisms to get more cancer, right, because they have more cells. But
4: that isn't the case. In this month's Naked Genetics podcast, we're unravelling Peto's paradox. Animals like elephants have many more cells than humans and they live longer, yet they hardly ever get cancer. But why? Plus, revolutions in genetics and a magical gene of the month. Listen and download now at nakedscientist.com genetics.
0: You're listening to The Naked Scientist with me, Chris Smith, and also with Connie Orback. If you'd like to get in touch, it's chris at to send us an email. You can also tweet at Naked Scientists or find us on Facebook.
1: Now we've heard the science behind the headlines, we're moving on to the second part of the show. And this week, we're talking about big data. But what actually is big data? In 2013, when he was the UK's science minister, Lord David Willits hailed it as one of his eight great technologies, industries in which the UK excels.
9: Big data is using the power of modern high-performance computing plus very smart software to detect patterns in large data sets that aren't always apparent using conventional statistical techniques. More data has been generated in the past five years... ...than in all previous human history. I identified it as one of the eight great technologies... ...because Britain has got some distinctive strengths. The fact is that we've got some pretty powerful computers... ...but not absolutely top five computers. The real way to get value from these computers... ...is to write smart software that gets more results... ...with fewer calculations. And we do write very good software. So we're, we're good at extracting significance from computers... ...even if they're not always the most powerful... And then what really matters for us in Britain is as well as all the contemporary flow of data, we've also in Britain got some really long historic data sets, reliable records kept for much longer periods than in most other countries from measuring climate change by tracking weather records kept by vicars in their parsonage. We have got some amazing resource like that which does reveal patterns that otherwise would not have been spotted.
0: David Willits, with us now is Sue Daly. She's the head of Big Data Cloud and Mobile at Tech UK. This is an organisation that represents over 850 technology companies. Sue, David Willits was obviously banging the drum for Britain there, but big data is an international phenomenon, of course.
8: That's correct. And I think the UK is in a great leading, world-leading position in terms of what what we're doing with big data so far. But you're right, it, it is global. Um, big data, or data as we know, is the digital currency that powers our digital economy all the way around the world. And we can see examples of big data in action wherever you may be. For example, if it's finding your your name on that fizzy Coke or um, drinks bottle, or turning on your digital TV and finding that movie or that, that box set that you, you've been talking about or hearing about all day long. The CERN um, Hydrogen Collider, for example, is using big data technologies and technologies and tools to find the answers to our universe. So yes, it is a global phenomenon.
0: David Willett said famously there, five years of data adds up to more than all of mankind's endeavours previous to that time. What's driving that?
8: Well, it's true. We see that it's estimated that 90% of the world's data today was created in the last two years alone. But I would say it's not just the volume of the data that's really important or what's different perhaps now. It's the coming together of different types of data all in real time. And that's a really significant Different and technology, and also having the advanced technological tools and solutions that the technology industry is developing and making available, that organisations can find those insights, that knowledge, that data needle in a data haystack, that enables them to use um, data more creatively. But that wouldn't be possible either without cloud computing, that enables all that data to be stored and processed and managed. You better explain what
0: the cloud computing concept is and what that means.
8: So cloud computing is a term for the ability of organisations to gain access to really complex, high powered computing resources on demand, 24 by 7, delivered direct to your your mobile device or you at home or, or at work. I suppose one other way of
0: looking at this is to say, well, I could have a very powerful computer at home and I could install loads of software on it to use that software once a week to work out my tax return or something. On the other hand, I could rely on a very good computer running that same piece of software somewhere in the middle of nowhere, let it grind through that data and then return to me the results that I need to put into my tax return without me having to actually do any of that processing locally.
8: Yeah, I think it's really important to remember that big data technologies and tools are not just for the large big huge companies or multinational organisations and the cloud is really enabling us all to take advantage of the big data revolution.
0: Can you give us some examples of, of how industry and academia perhaps are using this technology and this sort of resource which is now come of age for all of us
8: so there's some great examples of organizations that are using cloud computing for example you might be listening this in a, a room that you booked through airbnb that's using cloud computing you might be listening to this um in your car that you that you ordered over uber these again are examples of organizations that are using the ability and agility and flexibility of cloud computing the ability to scale up their it resources and scale down their it resources as and when they need it
0: I was talking the other day to someone who owns a major supermarket chain in another country, and interestingly, he said to me, having introduced a a customer loyalty card, they now know who shops where, they know what they buy, they know what volumes of things they buy when, and they're even talking about saying, well, we then know when someone moves to another city temporarily or goes on holiday, they've got techniques they're developing to ping them a message and lure them into the shop locally so that even though they're on holiday... They still nonetheless do their weekly shop with that company.
8: Yeah, so I think the way that companies and organizations are using data, so using big data tools and techniques to gain that insight, that knowledge from structured and unstructured data coming together that can then be turned into um, value. So that might be reducing costs, it might be driving efficiency. But more importantly, what's the value to us in terms of systems? And as you say, when you're you're away from holiday, you can still get goods and and products and services that are tailored to your likes and dislikes and and meet your need. It's helping to make all our digital lives a little bit easier. Where
0: do you think this is going next? Where's the next big thing? What is going to be the real outcome from big data from an industrial and corporate point of view?
8: So when I look to the future, it's really exciting time. We've got the the coming of age of the big data revolution, but combined with that, as we've just talked about, the power of cloud computing now. Bring that together with the emergence and the rise of the the Internet of Things. So the Internet moving away from computers and the Internet into everyday devices, whether that's wearables, your your smart oven or your smart heaters at home. I think it's a really exciting time, and I think big data is very much at the heart. of of the UK's digital future. Thank you.
0: Sue Daly from Tech UK.
1: So far, we've heard what big data is and how we can use it, but what happens when it gets really big? Peter Quinn is the Director of the International Centre for Radio Astronomy Research in Perth, Western Australia. He's part of a project that is developing a telescope so powerful that it will generate more data in a day than the entire world will in 2020 when it switches on.
10: The Square Kilometre Array is a radio telescope, so it looks at the sky in the frequencies that correspond to radio waves, the sort of waves that radio stations use or TV stations use. The thing about the SKA is it's a transformational change in our ability to collect data from the sky. So if you look over the history of astronomy for the last, say, 400 years... We've started with Naked Eye, when we went to Galileo's telescope, and then went to slightly larger telescopes, you know, space telescopes, etc. And every time we've built one of those telescopes about every 20 years or so, the telescope's kind of twice as good as the one we built before. With the SKA, we are building in one generation, a telescope which is 10,000 times better. This is something that hasn't happened before, and it's got all of the challenges that go along with things that haven't happened before.
1: And what is it you're looking for?
10: Essentially where the edge of the observable universe is. The universe began, we think, as a big bang, full of glowing gas. All hot glowing gases, when they expand, cool. And eventually they cool to the point where things start to condense out, just like water drops condensing out of steam. Those first things that condensed out in the universe, they were the first sources of light and the first things to shine. This happened probably less than a billion years after the beginning of the universe. But we don't quite know where. Once we find that point in the cosmic history, we know what the seeds, if you like, were of all the other things that ever happened in the universe. So it's an incredibly significant quest.
1: So how much is this going to cost?
10: We expect the first phase of construction to cost 650 million euros and that's contributed by the 11 member countries in the SKA consortium. The second phase of construction probably cost several times that much again.
1: Wow, this is a huge telescope. I'm assuming it's going to be collecting a lot of data. How much are we talking about?
10: On a typical day of operation, it'll produce a stream of science data, that's data that's ready to do science with, of around about one exabyte. Now, an exabyte is a one with 18 zeros after it, so that's a billion gigabytes. It's basically the kind of data volume that we'd expect the whole planet to produce in a year.
1: What are the main challenges with this level of data?
10: The main challenges are really the technology, how the computer is put together, whether it has the right ratio of input-output to storage to processing. We need a particular ratio for the kinds of data that we're using. Whether it has the right algorithm inside it, so that an algorithm that can scale from sort of where we are today up to the SKA scale. Some algorithms will just break, some systems, some pieces of mathematics would be used for many, many years, just won't work anymore when we go up to the SKA scale. So we sort of have to start again and figure out the maths and figure out the algorithms to go and analyze this data, and that's already started. There's Cost And this is a real serious one. When we build these special computing environments, and they're very big, I mean, we're talking about petaflops of processing power and petabytes of storage. They are very expensive things. Can they be afforded by research projects? So we need cost-effective computing. And maybe the way we do that is not perhaps by owning all the computing that we would like to have, but maybe sort of using some of the new technologies like cloud computing, where we basically just grab a piece of computing and use it for a little while then give it back if you, if you like because it's computing on demand. We don't have to own big computer centers and own big supercomputers for a long period of time. And then people. I mean, I, I really worry a lot about the training of the people to actually do the data analysis for things like SKA. It's a bit troubling because we're not training enough people to do this stuff, so it's a long-term future issue.
1: And once you've got all this data, where are you going to put it? Will you be able to store
10: it all? The answer is no. When we do radio astronomy, we take different kinds of data at different kinds of points in the observing process. So When we first look at the sky, we collect what we call raw data. This is just the stuff that's not yet an image. That raw data is probably between 10 and 100 times bigger than the exabyte of science data so there's no way we could afford to do that storage and so what we do is we try to keep the data on the move we take it straight from the telescope and pipe it right into the back of the supercomputer to do the processing and that processing reduces the data volume called data reduction so you know yeah we we can't store that data but we certainly want to store the final scientific images that the astronomers are going to use and astronomers tend to keep data for a very long time if you look in observatories around the world you can probably find photographic images of the sky that were taken more than 100 years ago and the reason why we keep those things is that you know sometimes we discover a new asteroid in the sky or a new planet we can go back and look at where it was 100 years ago and figure out its orbit so this historical data is very important and keeping it there and keeping it available for people to do other things with it other than the original purpose of the data and multiplies up its usefulness. That data curation problem for data sets of the size of the SKA is a very serious one and we're going to have to pool our resources globally to figure out how to do that.
0: We wait to see how they solve it. Peter Quinn there from the University of Western Australia. Now, it's not just projects as big as the SKA, the Square Kilometre Array, that uh, are worried about data storage. The genetic information that's kept at the European Bioinformatics Institute, or EBI, which is based just outside Cambridge, runs to, get this, six quadrillion bytes of data. And for the geeks among you, that's 6,000 million megabytes. Trying to solve this problem has led researcher Nick Goldman to think of a very novel solution that stores 30,000 times more data per gram than conventional methods like a hard disk. He is using DNA. DNA. And Rosalind Davis went to find out how he does this, but beginning with a look at what's currently inside the Institute's data centre.
11: It looks largely like an enormous number of quite compact computers, all lined up in big racks, one above the other, Other data centres will use different systems depending on what the demand for their data is. So, for example, the CERN data system is very interesting. They use a combination of hard disks and magnetic tapes. The new information that's exciting for the scientists is kept on hard disks. After a while, they move it to tape. Ours is all disk. Can we go in? Yes, absolutely. Follow me.
12: Oh, wow, it's getting loud now. OK, so we're inside the data storage centre. What have we got in the different racks?
11: There's a variety of machines of different ages, different size disks
12: got all the wiring going up to the ceiling where there are a lot of fans. It's a bit too noisy in here, Nick, so I think we'll go back outside to continue the conversation.
11: OK. So most of the noise that you hear is air conditioning fans. There's a cool system where they blow cold air in down every other aisle and they suck the warmed air up on the intermediate aisles. So if you walk up and down the aisles, there's a cold aisle, a warm aisle, a cold aisle, a warm aisle, and they put the computer racks facing back to back so that the air goes in at the front and always out at the back of each machine.
12: With these disks, how long do they last?
11: A typical data centre policy would be a three-year maximum lifetime for a disk. After that amount of time, you don't trust it anymore, so even if it hasn't gone wrong yet, you'll be expecting to replace it.
12: Oh, wow. Okay, that's quite often. So have you got backups of all this data?
11: Yeah, so modern disk systems are sort of automatically self-backing up. So each disk is being partly used for data and partly used as the backup of another disk. And all the information is shared across many disks. So in everyday use, if one disk goes wrong, there's no real impact on the system. A little light comes on somewhere and they swap that disk out and put a new one in. So to some extent, this renewal is always going on, but that doesn't reflect changes in technology so well. And so on a three or four-year cycle, they'll be completely replacing everything.
12: What's the kind of financial and, I guess, the environmental carbon cost of running a centre like this?
11: Financially, one of the biggest budget items for the EBI each year is the cost of the computing equipment and the disks. That runs into millions of pounds a year and the cost of doing the air conditioning on a data centre is about the same as the cost of the hardware. So it's a very large amount of money, and you can imagine yourself what the environmental impact of using that much energy would be.
12: You've looked into a novel way of storing data to avoid this problem.
11: Yeah, so inspired by some of the issues we had with scaling up our genome data storage facility, we were joking one day about any other way there would be for storing information that wouldn't be so costly, and realised that the DNA itself is a fantastic medium for storing digital information.
12: So you're actually storing digital data from computers and things back onto DNA?
11: That's right. We devised an experiment to show that this was possible on a reasonably large scale.
12: I can imagine this is quite a complicated process. Can we go to the lab and have a look at how it works?
11: Yes, let's do that.
12: After entering the lab and putting on a disposable lab coat, I sat down with Nick next to a fridge full of test tubes to find out how he stores digital data on DNA.
11: We invented some algorithms and some codes which would start with a file on a computer, which essentially is zeros and ones, and would convert that to a format that looks like fragments of DNA, letters A, C, G and T. And when we've made the designs for different fragments of DNA, we give those to a company... They're called Agilent and they have the technology to make those fragments of DNA in large numbers and large quantities of each fragment in their laboratories there and they send them to us in test tubes ready for us to handle in the lab.
12: They almost look empty. (laughs) But Nick, you're, you're telling me that there's something in these vials.
11: There's a tiny drop of liquid somewhere in there which is DNA in solution.
12: How much data can you put on DNA at the moment?
11: DNA is really, really tiny. It's, it's sort of unthinkably small. In our experiments, using a few megabytes of computer information, the actual quantity of DNA is essentially invisible. And we've calculated if you were to use the same system to record all the information currently held on computers in the whole world, it would be about one or two metres cubed.
12: Wow, that's tiny you get somebody else to make the DNA for you? Is it a really difficult process?
11: So at the moment, the system they use is a bit like an inkjet printer, but it's more complicated and requires very high precision, and it's currently done in clean rooms in a dedicated laboratory. It's a process that's getting increasingly important in biomedical research to have DNA made to designs that scientists want. So we're optimistic that that will get quicker and easier and cheaper. But at the moment, it's still quite a specialised process.
12: Once you've got the data and it's in the test tube, how do you read it?
11: So, we designed the whole system so it would fit right in with the standard technologies that are currently used for genome sequencing in biology and healthcare experiments.
12: What do you see the applications for this kind of storage being?
11: Well, the first applications will be ones where people are prepared to spend a large amount of money. So that will be high-value information, things that are culturally important or politically important, DNA will last hundreds or thousands of years without any intervention, as long as you keep it cool and dark. Genome scientists working in evolution have extracted DNA successfully from horses that died 700,000 years ago. And there's been some damage, but they've been able to recover essentially the whole genome sequence. So we know DNA will last that long. That wasn't even a controlled experiment, that was just a dead horse. So we're thinking of applications which would be the long-term archiving of high-value information...
0: Nick Goldman there from the European Bioinformatics Institute.
1: You're listening to The Naked Scientist with me, Connie Orbach, and Chris Smith.
0: When it comes to personal data, storage raises a different kind of challenge increasingly. And because of the way the internet works, our personal information is being collected, processed and held by companies who are based in many different countries. But the laws governing how our data are handled in different countries aren't the same. And knowing who can and can't access that information becomes very confusing. Tamandra Honkness is a journalist, and she specializes in big data she 's writing a book all about it uh, tamandra what 's the the scale of this and and what 's the evidence that there is actually a problem here
13: well, I think i 'm going to refer back to what Sue Daly said about it 's not just about the volume of data it 's actually about the fact that you can link different things together and I think this is a large part of the problem that companies or any kind of organization it could be charities, it could be government agencies who want to know stuff about us as individuals have access to a lot of different sources of data about us so they can put together something that we've voluntarily given them we might have uh registered on their site or ordered something online uh they can put that together with maybe our social media posts uh, or information that they've got from our credit card records perhaps it's it's very hard to say how much any individual company or organisation will know about you.
0: What about the issue that worries some people though, which is they give this data to a company. If you give a company in the UK something, then you know that they're bound by UK legislation. But people are finding that they give data to a company, an online presence. But because they're based in another country, they find they're actually subject to the laws of that country, not our own country.
13: Well that is true Uh, and obviously a lot of companies that we routinely use maybe as our web providers or to do web searches are actually based in America or elsewhere and so we don't even know what laws they're bound by. But I would say the problem starts a bit further back. I mean how many of us actually read the conditions before we hand over our data? We tend to be rather blindly trusting.
0: Stay there, we'll come back to you in just a second. But let's put what you were saying to the test and find out how easy it is for information held by companies and other organisations to fall into the wrong hands. Rosalind Davis went to an interactive art exhibition showcasing this called Data Shadow.
12: I'm outside a blue shipping container in the middle of Cambridge as part of the Festival of Ideas. It's an art installation by Mark Fareed, who joins me now to explain what it's all about.
14: So it's essentially about data privacy, but for me the lack of ownership you have over your own data
12: Can you explain the process? What are you actually doing here?
14: You join our Wi-Fi and then a captive portal pops up which asks you to enter your iCloud details to verify that you are the owner of the phone. And then at that point we take all of the information from your mobile phone.
12: What's different to this than using a normal Wi-Fi hotspot?
14: Essentially nothing. This is a normal Wi-Fi hotspot. We've just rigged it so we can do this, but the piece of equipment that we've rigged it with cost £100 off the internet that anyone can buy.
12: What you're doing here today, accessing the data, could be done by anybody if they
14: wanted to. Completely so. So if you ever joined Free Public Wi-Fi before, the equipment that we're using tricks your phone into believing that we are one of those Wi-Fis, automatically connects to it. And then at that point, we can be tracking what you're doing in real time on your phone.
12: Well, that sounds quite scary. Can we go inside? Can I give it a go? Of course you can. I'm entering a completely black room. Mine's not working, so we'll go through the same process but with Mark's data.
14: So I will log in using my information.
12: We've connected Mark's phone up to the data shadow and I'm walking through another door into a white room this time.
14: If you stand just there, in the middle.
12: Okay, so I'm in the middle of the room and (laughs) on one wall in front of me is a picture of somebody in boxer shorts. <laughs> Behind me is text. Mark, where have these letters come from?
14: Those letters are 1,000 characters in my most recent text message or messages. And then on the right-hand side, you'll see that we've taken 64 images off of my mobile phone They were first sent by text message, then WhatsApp, and then generic pictures on the phone.
12: When you first did this, were you surprised by what you saw?
14: Yeah. There were lots of photos of... Ex-girlfriends that I thought I deleted, people saw a lot of explicit photos of myself.
12: What happens next? Do I get to leave?
14: So you exit through this door,
12: and that was the door shutting behind us, and deleting all the data that they've collected.
0: Was it the girlfriends he deleted, or was it the, the data?
1: Maybe it was both. (laughs) Or he thought he had at least. So it seems anyone with the right technology could access a lot of personal information. Tamandra,
13: is there anything we can do to keep our data private? Well, there's quite a lot we can do technologically. I'm not uh, a tech expert, but I do keep an eye on this. Edward Snowden, oddly, has just given an interview to The Intercept, making some specific suggestions, and they are things like you can use Tor as a browser, which uh, makes it much harder to track where you're going, what you're looking at. You can encrypt everything on your phone and your laptop. You can encrypt your messages end-to-end. There are apps you can use for that. But he also has some, some more general advice, which I would echo, which is you be a bit selective about what you share with whom. You can segment your life, is his phrase. You don't have to tell everybody everything. Why why would you enter your iCloud details to some pop-up box from a Wi-Fi? Why would anybody do that?
1: I guess you're right, but it just you know when you just really want some free internet. <laughs> it's hard you know you know it's not sensible, but it's hard not to do it, isn't it? Are there any options being developed, maybe commercially or politically that could help us manage our personal data differently in the future other than the things we can do personally?
13: Well, I think I think that's the key. I mean, there are definitely some people saying, look, we need a whole different model for this. We need to think that our data is ours to control. And if we want to trust somebody with it, that should an act of trust that you know i will trust you with this but not necessarily with that and there are things like the blockchain the technology that underlies bitcoin uh, is quite good for this because you can uh, encrypt things and then select who you're going to share your keys with Uh, there's a company called mydex who are developing a whole new model of data storage which would be very secure and you could give again very specific consent to people to use certain parts of your data for certain purposes and but the other side of that is we do need to think differently about it politically we need to actually value privacy and say never mind nothing to hide nothing to fear I always say if you've got nothing to hide you haven't really lived Uh, you don't have to be doing anything illegal or harmful to anybody else to think privacy is is really important and you can't have a free society without privacy
1: so after doing all this research, have you done anything differently yourself?
13: I I am actually doing certain things differently. A lot of stuff I'm leaving for now because it's quite interesting to just be conscious of what's happening as I write the book. So, for example, I went and looked at a website of a company that all our political parties use to keep track of their contacts and you know keep an eye on what they should be using to try and campaign to you so i look at this company's website and for the next 3 weeks their tweet appears at the top of my twitter feed and i haven't i haven't registered with them i haven't given them any information consciously uh, but there they are I'm definitely doing things like I'm not downloading apps that want to know my location details on my phone. Why why do they need to know where I've been? Um, I'm definitely more selective about registering and, and letting people share my data.
0: Got a tweet here from Ed Wilson to Mandarin. He says, at Naked Scientist, surely the triumph of big data is knowing that uh, how many sorry he says surely the triumph of big data is how many times you get adverts for the very thing you've just bought online but it reminds me of something which is that I have now begun to foil so many birthday surprises because I share an internet connection with my wife and my other members of my family so I know what I've, I've got for Christmas or for my birthday, because uh, up come all these adverts for these things. And I think, well, well, I haven't been looking at that. Why is this suddenly appearing on my computer?
13: Well, you definitely need to be using uh, some anonymous browsing technique then, like Tor, uh, and probably turning off... Uh, adverts. In fact, that's another thing Edward Snowden recommends is is using ad blockers. But this is exactly it. I think big data tries to aggregate everything, put everything together. Actually, in real life, we don't want to put everything together. That's exactly it. You don't want to know everything your family's thinking.
0: I certainly don't, but for more reasons than just a birthday. Thank you very much to Mandra Harkness, who's the author of Big Data Does Size Matter? And also to our other guests this week, David Willett, Sue Daly, Peter Quinn and Nick Goldman. Now, before we say farewell, it is time for our question of the week. And Rosalind Davis has been pondering Colin's question.
14: The Naked Scientist's Question of the Week, brought to you in association with the How to Wisman
15: Foundation, supporting science and education, from alpha to omega. Why do we lose hair on our heads, but not on the rest of our body? To stop me pulling
12: my hair out, trying to get to the bottom of this... I asked Professor Robert Foley from the Department of Archaeology and Anthropology at the University of Cambridge to help me out.
15: We do lose hair from our heads and from our bodies throughout our lives. You only have to clean a shower out or a bath out to realise that that's true. And of course we don't really notice or see the loss of hair on our bodies because the hair is miniaturised, very small and it's not very dense. The loss is, is, is virtually invisible. In addition, of course, it's replaced so we don't see a long-term effect either on our bodies or our hair. If we turn to the bigger and obviously more important question, is the permanent loss of hair, in other words, going bald. And there, there is a particular pattern to it. It is men, or rather some men, who go bald. Why some men become bald is partly a matter of genetics. There seems to be quite strong evidence that there are genes and those genes are on the X chromosome, and that produces uh, a sex-linked pattern of inheritance so that men inherit their baldness from their mother's father.
12: Surely, though, as a species, we would all have evolved to keep our glossy locks.
15: It might well be that baldness has actually got some evolutionary advantage. Not many men feel that, but there have been studies showing that bald men can be seen as more attractive often because it's associated with longevity, with success, wisdom, knowledge, maturity.
12: OK, so if you are wise and mature, but also unfortunately bald, is there anything you can do?
15: In terms of doing anything about it, all one can really say is uh, buy a hat and be happy. It's almost certainly a signal of long-term survivorship as much as anything else.
12: Sound advice there from Professor Robert Foley. Next week, we'll be answering Amanda's
13: question. How do I stop my
2: nose from
13: running?
0: So, do you know how to stop the sniffles? Well, if you do, send your remedies to chris at com. You can also find us on Facebook. You can tweet at Naked Scientists, or you can also join the debate that's going on on our web forum. You find that at nakedscientist.com forward slash forum. Well, that's it for this week. Thank you very much to Rosalind Davis, who put the show together. And do be sure to join us next time, when we're going to be delving into the world of the postmortem. We'll be doing a very special one-off show. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University, where it's supported by the EPSRC, the STFC and Rolls-Royce. My name is Chris Smith, this is RN, and thank you very much for listening. Until next time, goodbye.